Well, it is good to be with you. I bring you greetings from Portland, Oregon, Western Seminary, where I teach, and Hinson Church, where I, I have the privilege of serving as an elder. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4? Hopefully you're already there. Acts chapter 4. Luke, a, a friend and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, an eyewitness of many of the things of which he writes later in this book, uh, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open up your word to us, and would you open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, each, each day on my way to work, I drive by a billboard advertisement for a local university. Well, I'll just tell you, it's Portland State University. And it's celebrating its commitment to inclusivity. And it says on the billboard, we value inclusivity, right? We are inclusive. And I suppose that that could be construed as a statement about its admission requirements. Hey, we let everyone in, right? <laughs> you have a good shot of getting into our school. Send us an application. Um, probably not, though. Probably what they're trying to do in a non-transparent, I should say in a very transparent way, is to tap into post-modernity's commitment to tolerance and its rejection of exclusivity. We live, do we not, in a pluralistic world full of all different kinds of people. There are different kinds of philosophies. There are different kinds of religions. And of course, since shortly after the fall, right, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm talking about the fall of man, not the turn of the seasons, but the fall of man, and that would be on probably about page three of your Bible, right? Page four, maybe, if you have really big font, really early in the Bible, this has been the case. It describes the way things are, different views on God. Ever since man rebelled against God, we have been trying to uh, construe God or maybe create God in our own image. So that's all, it's always been the case, right? Uh, always been the case that there have been different ideas about who God is, different philosophies of life, different ways that people live. But what has changed in our day, in our time, is that pluralism doesn't just describe the way things are, it prescribes the way things ought to be. When, when pluralism is cherished and prescribed, then tolerance will necessarily rise to the top of the virtue list, doesn't it? I mean, what is the only virtue that people can agree on in our postmodern society? I mean, I, I suppose be good, but, but, but how do you be good? The best way to be good, be tolerant. Be tolerant, right? In, in today's world, to be exclusive, particularly about religion, is to be narrow and closed-minded. 
and most likely in a guilty until proven innocent fashion, it's to be judgmental, it's to be bigoted. I mean, worse than all of that, to be exclusive is just to be plain rude. I mean, who wants to be like that? Who wants to be around people like that? Well, I suspect that exclusivity is not quite as odd or as dishonored as we might think. Exclusivity is still cherished in our day-to-day operations, especially if promises are made. For example, I am exclusively my wife's husband. And I would hope that most people in the world would think that that is a good thing. Now, having me off the market is probably not any great shakes in the world, (laughs) right? But I still think, I still think that there is this idea that exclusivity is not as dead as we think, right? I mean, we, anytime we make promises, we are expected to keep them. And so the postmodern world recognizes if you dig beneath the surface a little bit, that exclusivity is still a good thing. The question is, what are we exclusive about? So we are told in this world that truth claims, especially religious truth claims, ought to be humble. We should be humble about them. Better yet, when it comes to religion, people ought to be presented with choices. I like choices, right? And boy, does our pluralistic world deliver. We are given a seemingly endless array of options. It is, if you will, an ideological smorgasbord where we can sample, we can select from all the religious entrees according to my taste and according to my preference without fear of cultural reprisal to be told that your religious conviction is wrong, well, that's largely equivalent to being told that your dessert choice is wrong, right? I mean, claiming that Jesus is the only way to salvation, however salvation might be construed in our pluralistic world, that's like arguing that derby pie is the only way to after-dinner paradise, right? Have y'all had derby pie before? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, 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 it's pecan or walnut pie saturated in chocolate. It is awesome, right? right? And so maybe you'll go with me to After Dinner Paradise, right? But I still, have to, I still would have to persuade you, right? And there might be, some of you might not like that. Right? Well, that's to your loss, but I can hardly condemn you for that. In, in our world, in our world, to claim that, that, that my dessert choice is the only way, well, that's ridiculous. And it's the same thing when it comes to claiming that my religious preference is the right way, the only way. It might be right for me, but it doesn't have to be right for you. Now, that's just the way our culture thinks right? We love choices, especially when it comes to food. Portland, for all of its strangeness and weirdness, is a great food town. And one of the things it's most famous for is the food court, or the food carts, courts, food cart courts, food carts, courts, whatever, right? You, 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 you walk into an area, an empty city block, any place where there's an undeveloped 
plot of land, you'll find lots and lots of food carts. And man, you walk in there and you are presented with like the world's best food offerings. And, and you can pick and choose. You can pick and choose. And, and I'm here to tell you, I love it, right? I love that. I love choices. So I'm, I'm not here to tell you that pluralism is bad and that having choices is bad. What I am here to tell you about, though, is that we need to think well about where pluralism ought to end, where it ought to end, and, and, and where listening to truth might begin. Now that's, as I said, this is our ambient cultural atmosphere. It, it, it's in the very air that we breathe, and it's beginning to creep into the church's thinking. Then, when we are confronted by someone who, who questions whether Christianity is the only way, on, uh, on the grounds of, of, just think about the enormous number of people who die without believing, many of them who die without ever being given the opportunity to hear the gospel, our minds begin to race. Isn't it true that God desires all to be saved? 1 Timothy 2.4. Isn't it true that the Lord does not wish that any should perish? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And then we consider the hardest of all questions. What about those who through no fault of their own have never even heard? What about them? How can we be so exclusive in our thinking? Well, I think that our text this morning addresses many of those issues. And what we will find is that rather than bowing to the pluralistic spirit of that age and make no mistake about it, for the first century Greco-Roman Empire, even down into Jerusalem, was very pluralistic. Right? You had lots of gods before you. Maybe not in the temple courts of Jerusalem, but in the Greco-Roman world at large, it was very pluralistic. Pluralism, as I said, it's not really a new thing. What we'll find is that two of the disciples of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of God, they proclaim Jesus to be the only way to be saved. And they do so in the face of significant oppression. This morning, if, if, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, I would invite you to consider the weight of Peter's preaching, the claims therein this morning. If you are a Christian, you understand yourself to be a follower of Christ, I would invite you to consider the strength of the conviction that the apostles held and then evaluate your own convictions in light of that. So our text, Acts 4, well, it, it, it begins there. But of course, Luke didn't begin writing in Acts 4, did he? He started at, wait for it, Acts 1, right? So he assumes that by the time you get to Acts 4, you've already read Acts 1, 2, and 3. And actually, Luke didn't begin his writing just in Acts. He had written a whole gospel of Jesus Christ before that. And this book of Acts is the continuation of that. We know that from the very first couple verses of the book of Acts. This is all, this book, Acts, is all that Jesus was continuing to do. So this is Luke's Gospel of Jesus, part two, if you will. Our text falls near the beginning, but not at the beginning of this book of Acts. And so if we're to understand rightly, 
we must consider what he assumes we have read up to this point. The book of Acts begins just after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrated last Sunday. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah who had claimed to be and had come to be recognized by some as the Savior of the world, the King of the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, was cruelly crucified. But God had vindicated the life and ministry of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and had accepted Jesus' offering of himself to pay the penalty for the sin of humanity by raising him from the dead. I'm sure you heard that preached last Sunday. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, after Jesus' resurrection, he told his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it is significant here, I think, especially for where we're going to study in Acts 4, that Jesus talks of what he will do for his disciples. He will send the Holy Spirit. And then of what the disciples will become. You will be my witnesses. The disciples understood that to be a witness for Jesus is first and foremost about what Jesus made them to be through the presence and the power of the Spirit and only secondarily about their own decisions, their efforts, their strategies. I don't know that they thought we have to go out and become witnesses. They understood themselves to be witnesses and so what do witnesses do, right? kind of went in that order. What you are dictates what you do. Refusing to witness for Jesus would have been a denial of the great work of Christ and what Jesus had actually made them to be. It would have effectively been to say to Jesus, no, you have not made me your witness. Well, I have. No, you haven't. Yes, I have, right? In in fulfillment, then, of Jesus' promises, the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and what begins as Spirit-empowered praise of the Lord turns to Spirit-empowered preaching of Jesus Christ, and the result is 3,000 people are convicted of their sin, they repent, and they believe the gospel, and they're baptized into what could only be called an amazingly and surprisingly explosively growing church. I mean, the, the... Peter and the rest of them had to be out of their minds because they're saying, you know, like you read Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and I mean, it's okay, right? It's okay. And 3,000 people come. They had been listening to Jesus for a few years, preach incredible sermons unlike anything they had ever heard before, and no one followed like this. Jesus had said, I'm going to send the helper. When I go away, you will do greater things even than what you have seen me do. And they must have just been floored. Peter gets up and preaches the very first Christian sermon, if you will. And 3,000 people come. Amazing, amazing. Some short time after that, two of Jesus' leading followers, Peter and John, they're going to pray at the temple. And, and they see a man asking for alms. You know, you see, they saw that all the time. And follow, the following unfolds in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The result is that the people are amazed. They are astounded. Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, calling on everyone within earshot to turn from their wickedness and turn to God. And that's where we pick up our story, Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Clearly, the, the healing of the lame man and the subsequent preaching, it caused quite a commotion because before Peter had gotten to the altar call, before John could even begin playing just as I am on the temple organ, even as the speech is in progress, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they literally set upon Peter and John. They set upon them. This is the language of confrontation. Who are these people who confront the disciples? Well, the priests, of course, are the temple workers, right? Those who were supposed to act as mediators between the people and the Lord. The captain was in charge of the temple police. He was also part of the priestly caste, and he officiated over the daily whole offering. His role was to keep the peace and not allow any messianic fervor that Rome would not appreciate. Now, you won't find that in Leviticus anywhere, right? But that's how he had come to understand his job. The Sadducees, well, they were an aristocratic sect of Judaism empowered to lead. So those who were most concerned in their own minds, by their own devising, with keeping the peace, especially with Rome, they descend upon Peter and John. And it's also clear that what they were most annoyed at was the apostles' proclamation of the resurrection. Now, for most of the Jews, for most of the Jews, the idea of a general resurrection was not problematic. But Peter and John were announcing not just a one day off in the distant future resurrection, they were announcing the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of the final resurrection. And now, this was not your typical temple preaching, right? It was not a nice, safe message of obey the law, keep the peace, don't make waves so you can live long and prosper, right? It wasn't like that at all. This was the announcement that the God of Abraham and Moses and David was on the move, right? Reminds me of Narnia, Aslan's on the move. Well, in, at that moment, God was on the move in a remarkable way. Why? Because even though Jesus Christ had been cruelly put to death, that did not foil God's plans at all. In fact, it was part of the plan. God is on the move. Finally, finally, the God of Abraham, Moses, and David was on the move in a remarkable way, just as the prophets had foretold, and that the long-awaited messianic age that almost all the Old Testament prophets just yearned for in their teaching and preaching, it had begun because Jesus Christ got up from the dead. Well, it's late in the day. 
So they silence the pair of preachers, they arrest them, they take them into custody until they can be questioned further. But if their aim was to keep people from believing the message of Jesus, well, the arrest didn't work, did it? Because about 5,000 people repent and believe Peter's message. Obviously, crucifying Jesus was not sufficient to quiet his new community. Something more has to be done. It sounds ominous as we move to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, yeah, that one, and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter and John spend a lonely night in custody, and that gives their inquisitors time to gather a larger and a more representative group. By the next day, rulers, elders, and scribes, and the high priestly family, they have gathered to examine this pair of troublemakers. What is at stake for them is it's not merely the trial of a couple rabble-rousers who had threatened the peace of the temple, but actually it was the trial, the initial trial of the Jesus movement that continued to threaten the peace of a nation and the fragile stability of the religious religion with its relationship with Rome. Now the leaders, they're most likely seated in a semicircle with the disciples standing right in the middle. They, did you notice that? They put them in their midst. This is a setting, no doubt, designed to intimidate and to bully. And they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? The question is framed in such a way to make clear that the leaders, those responsible for the temple, those empowered with the authority to lead worship, to guide the people, they had not given the disciples authority to speak or to act. What kind of authority had granted them the power to do this? You know, the questions today, they haven't really changed, have they? They're asked all the time in our society, especially in our culture, our postmodern culture, who gives you the right to speak of such things? Who gives you the God's eye view of reality to tell me the way things actually are? Who gives you the right to tell me that I have to repent? Who gives you the right to tell me that God is going to judge me? Who are you to tell me that I have to believe in Jesus? By what power and authority do you say such things? Just like the leadership that sought to intimidate Peter and John, the world and our culture will do the same. Now, I know that our culture may seem far nicer at first. We're so nice, aren't we? We're nice, nice. Our culture is so tolerant. Anything and everything is supposed to be accepted in our culture until your worldview judges and critiques the worldview of others. And make no mistake about it, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ judges and condemns all other worldviews as being false. And when that happens, some of you may well know, the claws of our so-called tolerant culture, they come out, don't they? And because our tolerant culture is absolutely intolerant of any of 
thing that it perceives to be critical of their most dominant virtue, tolerance. Well, those claws are not retracted until they have done whatever damage the weapons of this world can do. And those weapons hurt. And they cannot kill the soul. They cannot rob you of your adoption as a child of God, co-heir with Jesus. Christian, you need to know that. I mean, I, I would never underestimate or make light of the pain of ridicule or lack of respect or mockery. I mean, I, I feel that. I mean, I, I'm almost ashamed to say it, but I know that I'm surrounded by people who feel the same way. It hurts. There, there's a fear of man that causes us to want to be liked, to want to be appreciated, especially by those that we perceive to be the power brokers, but even by our next door neighbor who isn't really a power broker of this age. We want to be liked by them. I get that. And so their disdain, their rejection, their, their disbelief, it's hard not to take personal. I get it. It, it, it hurts. And around the world, not, not here yet, but around the world, the weapons are far more brutal. Torture, imprisonment, even death. You understand, don't you, that to be a Christian is not a very safe sort of thing. There have been more Christians killed in the last century than had ever been killed in any preceding century, right? It's not like things are getting better for Christians. They're actually getting more and more dangerous. But Jesus warned us of this, didn't he? He warned us of this. In John 15, 18, he told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has already hated me before it hated you. It's as though Jesus says, so don't take it personally. It's really not about you. It's about me. And I can take it. One chapter later, John 16, the same discourse, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they, because they have not known the Father nor me. That's what I love. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he's not a bait and switch guy at all, is he? He tells us what it's like to follow him. And he says, count the cost. He, he, he never promises best life now. Count the cost. Go in with your eyes open. He never promises it will be easy. He just says it, it will be worth it. And then Jesus promised the helper, the, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that had empowered Peter and John. And so let's look at their response in verses 8 through 11. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Notice at the beginning of the discourse, Peter is full of the Holy Spirit. That's our clue that everything he is about to say has divine imprimatur. He's just not speaking off the cuff. No, it is, it, it is worthy of our consideration. It is worthy of our emulation. Christians, you, you have to own this. And if you're here this morning and are not a Christian, recognize that what Peter is about to say is the very word of God. He is full of the Spirit. He is giving divine utterances now. We note that Peter is considerate and respectful. I mean, look at his address. Rulers of the people and elders. 
He grants them their titles. We note how clever he is too. Are we really on trial for doing a good deed? The implied question is, why would you do that? Ah, but if you ask by what means was this man healed, well, then I can tell you. Notice that he has not yet directly answered the question of by what authority do you do this? But in answering the means by which this man was healed, Peter will most certainly answer the question of the authorization and authority. It is by the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that this man has been raised. Jesus Christ is the one who has done this, not Peter, but Jesus. This was nothing less than manifest proof that the messianic age had arrived. The Messiah that they were preaching is the one who had healed the man. The prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is the same Jesus that the Jews had rejected, but God had not rejected him. Though he was put to death by the nation of Israel, God raised him from the dead and made him the cornerstone of all of God's redemptive purposes. And now Peter offers another chance, but his offer comes in the form of a warning. The tables are now turned. The accusers are now being questioned. Be careful about rejecting Jesus. Such a rejection will come at great cost, and here is why. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is perhaps the strongest statement of the exclusivity of Christ in the entire Bible, and it is not popular to affirm that now. But it wasn't popular when Peter uttered those words either. Today, making the demand that Peter did is unpopular, it is seen as judgmental, and the world does not like it. And if you are someone today who does not understand himself or herself to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that we all, you and I, have rebelled against God. We are alienated from him and will face his inevitable judgment. We need someone to save us from him. Not just save us from ourselves. It's a God problem that we have because God is mad. He has been disobeyed. He has been rebelled against. We need someone to save him. And in God's kindness, the Lord determined to make that way by sending his son to save us. He took our place. He dies our death that we ought to have died only to be raised from the dead with the promise that all who repent and trust him will be raised with him. Now, the world is full of different ideas on this, most of which find their origin not in the word of God, but in the fallen sensibilities and baseless hopes of man. One proposal out there is universalism, the belief that all will be saved regardless of life lived or faith confessed. Another proposal, the most popular in our postmodern age, is pluralism, the belief that there are many paths that lead to God. Jesus is one option among many. And I grant you, in our world, there are many paths too many gods. <laughs> but that's different, isn't it, than many paths to one God. Within Christianity itself, some suggest another proposal, inclusivism, the idea that only Jesus can atone for sin and bring reconciliation to God, but you don't necessarily have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved by Jesus. But as we will see as we break down this verse, 
Jesus and his followers after him did not leave open any of those options. They were steadfast. We must preach the gospel because belief in Jesus is the only way that anyone will be saved. Several aspects of this verse emphasize the need for conscious faith in Christ in order to be saved. First, that phrase, under heaven, right? There is no other name under heaven, under heaven. That demonstrates just how extensive Peter's exclusion of all other names actually is. It doesn't matter where in the world you go. There is no other name anywhere, anywhere given to people. Second, notice that Peter does not localize the statement with no other name given to you or no other name given to the Jews. Rather, Peter announces there's no other name given to people. And if you're a person then, and I think all of you are, then there's no other name given to us. This is it. Third, the words we must and other, right? There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No, no other name by which we must be saved. That speaks to the total degree of exclusivity. If salvation is to occur, it must by necessity be accomplished by Jesus. It's God's way. That's it. It's, it's not plan B, C, or D. It's really, quite frankly, not even plan A, right? It's just the plan. That's it, that's all there is. Any other name presented will not and cannot save. And then finally, the use of the word name itself points to far more than just the source. Name points to the totality of all that Jesus is and did, both his being and his work. Jesus is identified as the name given to people, the, the object of our faith. We have to believe in him in order to be saved. And that Jesus, the reason we have to believe in him in order to be saved is because he is the only means by which we can be saved. Yes, the inclusivist is right. There is no salvation in anyone else. The only hope for anyone to be saved is through Jesus, but it's more than just, and so he accomplished the work and now God will let anyone in regardless of confrontation with Jesus or belief in him. No, name indicates the totality of who one is and what one does. And so look at the response. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. That's a long time to be faking something, right? Long time. The, the, the Jews, notice at the beginning, the Jews are stunned by the boldness. Peter and John didn't care about how popular their message would be. They exhibited no concern for political correctness. They didn't bow to the gods of tolerance in their pluralistic world. 
No, they made no attempt to curry favor with the temple leadership. What kind of freaks are these guys? Don't they know who we are? Don't they know that? They had been given marching orders by Jesus, apparently. They were authorized by the one who had all authority. They were empowered and animated by the divine Holy Spirit. They did not fear man. And the leadership understood, despite their lack of formal training, did you notice? They had been with Jesus. What were they struck by? Their boldness and their testimony. Not their cleverness, not their brilliance, not their eloquence. They were bold. They had been with Jesus. Boy, may that be said of, of you and I. May, may people not be impressed with our rhetoric or our cleverness or our supposed brilliance in the eyes of the world, but wouldn't it be great if someone said of you, that person has been with Jesus, got no answer. How bold they are. The Jewish leadership faces a dilemma. They didn't want the apostles to preach Jesus in the resurrection, but they couldn't deny that a notable sign had been performed, so they charged them not to teach in the name of Jesus. That really ought to be translated more menacingly. They threatened. They threatened. The warning, the charge was designed to intimidate. It reeks of damage control, doesn't it? But it also sets up the apostles for a far more dramatic punishment if they fail to heed the threat. And spoiler alert, that's what happens. Peter and John have a choice, don't they, at this point? They could obey God or they could obey the leaders. The positions of those who commanded Peter and John not to preach, they were legitimate. Their authority was legitimate. They were the temple priests. They were the Sadducees. They had legitimate authority. But their command was not legitimate because it ran contrary to the will of the one whom the, from whom the leadership derived its authority. Peter and John could not heed the threat because they had been commissioned by Jesus and empowered by God. You see, the Jewish leadership at this point is working against the will of God. And any authority that anybody on earth has is derivative. It is delegated. And we really only have the authority to do things that God would have us do. When a leader commands something contrary to the will of God, that leader has abdicated and vacated their own authority. Leadership lies in the position, not in the person. And you only have the right to do what God wants you to do with that authority that he has delegated. And the Jewish leadership, they don't have the right to tell people not to preach the Jewish Messiah, whom the priests were supposed to be safeguarding and shepherding the people toward. The disciples recognized this, and they insisted, I, I, I can't obey an illegitimate command of a vacated leadership. I have to obey God. Quite simply, they had to speak of what they had seen and heard. And so must you. The tides of this world and its system would sweep you on to the shores of religious pluralism, tolerance, and lack of any kind of conviction. But, but you ought to know better where the world preaches peace, 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 you must be bold enough to tell the world what it has to hear but does not want to if it is to find true peace with God and each other. The world would have you question your commitment to gospel proclamation by having you believe that such convictions are not nice. But 
My brothers and sisters, there is nothing nice about a world alienated and rebelling against God. A world that already stands condemned and faces certain judgment. I mean, the world will have you philosophize and theologize all the way to judgment day, telling you that the question of what about those who have never heard is a defeater to your convictions, a defeater to what we are commanded to teach and to preach. But you know the answer to that. It is the same answer that was given by Jesus and so gripped the apostles that they poured out their lives responding to Jesus. What about those who've never heard? And the biblical response is, go tell them. Go tell them. Yeah, but what about those people in Papua New Guinea whom we don't even have a written language for yet and we have to spend so much time in? Well, you go tell them. Yeah, but what about those people in the Middle East? So hard to get in there because Islam, you go tell them. But what about those? You go tell them. But go tell them. You go tell them. You go tell them. The biblical response to what about those who've never heard? Go tell them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would embolden us and strengthen us, that we would be your witnesses. We ask, Father, that you would take away, you would overcome our fear of man by a, a loving and reverent fear for you. Please replace that in us with fear of you because we know that you are kind, we know that you are good, and you are generous. You have granted to us the enormous privilege of announcing to the world that Jesus Christ is alive and he is king and all of your redemptive purposes are summed up in him. Give us that conviction, Father, out, out of love for our neighbor and out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.